I'm Daniel Wordsworth. I've led humanitarian relief efforts in just about every disaster, natural and man-made, for the last 30 years. Smuggled into North Afghanistan in a helicopter after 9-11, made the overland route to Kyiv in the early days of the Ukraine invasion, and I led an emergency team into Sri Lanka after the East Asia tsunami. Across all continents, I've seen the worst of humanity. Terrible tragedy in places like Darfur, Congo, and Somalia. Horrors even worse than you can imagine. I've been in wars, famines, and epidemics. But here's the thing. Having experienced and seen all of this, I believe the world is abundant. As humans, we can make a difference. And I know, not believe, I know that humans are good. The way you see the world is how the world will show up for you. And in this podcast, I'll explain why. We'll talk to leaders, people making a difference, and we'll discuss the issues that impact us as they happen. Welcome back to Finding Good. Now you know a little bit more about Daniel. My name's Fitz and I'm here. I'm a, I'm a tour guide, basically, through Daniel's mind and stories and experiences. Uh, the reluctant optimist, as you like to call yourself. Some housework first. Obviously, you've got to follow uh, Daniel on the socials. You can go to danielwordsworth.com as well to ask Daniel a question. Uh, and if you're listening on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or some yet to be invented platform, please make sure you follow or subscribe. Now, a couple of weeks ago, we were sitting in your office, we were talking about this idea of the deep state and, and conspiracy theories and QAnon, and you've, you've been in the halls of power. Yeah. Tell me about the deep yeah, state. Yeah, so... Um, <laughs> Does it exist? Is there someone trying to take over the world, Daniel? Yeah, no. So there's good news and there's bad news about this. Yeah. Yeah. Now, and I want to. I'm going to. I don't want to sound like a total jerk when I talk about this. I am not um, one of these powerful people, but I have been to these places. Yep. So I have met, and met many of these people. So that means things like you know when you talk about conspiracies, if you bring up the Clinton Global Initiative, you know people's heads blow up. Yeah. So I've been to the Clinton Global Initiative a couple of times. Actually, I've been to the White House and advised the White House in, in security meetings in the White House. London, Geneva, New York, Washington. Every, I haven't been to Davos because, you know, Davos. But I have been, actually been to a thing called the World Government Summit. Now Sound. talk about something that everybody's head's going to explode over. And, and I've been in many of these rooms with these kinds of people. So here'd be my observation. Yep. Everyone is waiting for lunch. <laughs> Everyone is just waiting for lunch. Yep. It is not, and here's the good news and the bad news, right? The good news is, there. I've met Bill Gates. There's no evil genius. There is no <laughs> evil genius in the world. Most people, actually, one of the rarest things in life is consistent competence, right? And and to, to pull off some of the things that people think people are pulling off, it requires consistent competence, and that is a real hard one to actually match. You know, I sat in a room once in a very fancy place, very big place, where people were talking about how do we rebuild Iraq. Yeah. And I looked around the room thinking, and we're the ones talking about this. Yep. So the good news, there's no evil genius. There's no one that's cooking up some plan to destroy <laughs> us all. It ain't happening. Secondly, and this is the bad news, Tom Cruise is an actor. Right? There's no Mission Impossible team of daring do crew that's like ready and 
there to save us all. James Bond does not exist. There is no group of super geniuses that are sitting in some global gathering that are like Necker Island with Richard Branson. They're all just waiting for lunch, <laughs> yep, and all waiting to get back on their private planes or on their yachts because that's where they really want to be, yep. There is no grand architect. So the good news and the bad news is this. Everybody's just trying to live. Everybody's just trying to do their thing. Some people have huge expectations in that, but in the end it comes down to everyone's just waiting for the weekend, yep. So what does this mean? This means it's going to come down to us. There is no one out there who's going to save us except us. And I think the temptation when I say that is to be disappointed. Yep. Is to go, wow, it's us. Yeah. We're going to save us. Yeah. But I, I just want to tell you that's the best news of all. Yeah. I'm, I fully bank on you. I fully bank on the people listening to this. I know without a shadow of a doubt that if you bank on everyday people, they always come through. And, I, and, I, and I've seen that over and over again. And there was one moment more recently where I doubted that and it, it totally, like, uh, well, I'll, I'll explain the situation. Yeah. Yes, so the, I'm like this, don't worry. Every, there'll be people there. Don't worry, this is my whole thing. It's, it's going to be fine. This is what I mean by reluctant optimists. There'll be thousands of people there to help. Resources will come. We can, you can leap into this ocean of need and you'll find a way through it and you'll be able to help because there'll be all these things there. And people go, but I look at the ocean, it looks hopeless. And you go, yeah, it does seem that way, but don't worry, it's not that way. And, and then one day, the Ebola, you remember the Ebola outbreak that happened? I think it was 2017, 2018 in West in Africa. Yeah, in, well, it ended up going to the US yeah. in Texas, but it started in West Africa. And then everybody's losing their minds. So in Australia, I think all the borders got closed, right? You wouldn't, yeah. you, we shut down air travel. Everyone's going to get Ebola. Now, Ebola is bad. Like Ebola is like when you say, Google, worst bad <laughs> disease. Yeah. Diseases that really suck, right? <laughs> Ebola, bang, right there. Yeah. Top, top of the list. Top of the list, yeah. right? <laughs> what do you mean by that? Blood from your eyes. Yeah, blood from all the holes in your thing. I, I took a person once to an Ebola testing center and I, the person was a bit nervous and we met the doctor and the doctor was like, the person was like, what are we testing for here? And the doctor was like, uh, uh, hemorrhagic fever. And she was like, phew, because I was worried. It was <laughs> Ebola. Was <laughs> which, of course, is hemorrhagic fever. Yeah. So um, he goes, oh, no, 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 that's Ebola, right? So we were responding to this. And I, I, I know I'm not trying to make it light, but Ebola is a thing, serious thing. Anyway, it broke out in West Africa. Everybody's freaking out. A Saturday morning, I get a call from the two government, U.S. government officials that were coordinating the U.S. response to the Ebola outbreak in Africa and in particular West Africa. Mm -hmm. And they called me on a Saturday morning and they said, we need... Now, we'd, been, we'd, we'd seen this and Ebola up until then was a very specialist um, problem. Now, we worked with infectious diseases, but Ebola was like, you know, top and there were really only two organizations in the world that were, had real expertise in Ebola. We weren't one of them. And they called up and they said, would you be willing to respond? Because we, so we were holding off. And they said, we, all, everyone that works in infectious diseases needs to pitch in on this one. And I said, well, you do know we're not in their expertise. We don't have Ebola expertise. And they're like, right now, everyone that works on infectious diseases, cholera, all these different things, we need you to go. So I said, okay, we'll go. 
And then I, the, then I said, what will you do? And I said, well, you tell me. Like, you're calling me. Like, what do you want us to do? Hmm. And then they said, well, we want you to run an Ebola treatment unit. Now, at that time, that's where, you know, the guy that was running the Liberia Ebola response had just died. All the doctors and nurses in the Ebola units at that time were all dying. From Ebola? From Ebola. So, you like the guy in Liberian head doctor managing the Ebola response had died like a day or two earlier of Ebola. And they were like, we want you to run an Ebola treatment unit. And then I thought, well, that means I'll be sending... So, like, that's a serious thing. And so then, and I said, okay, we will run an Ebola treatment unit. So I, I go on the, I go to the office and I call my executive team in. And then I go, well, we got the call. We have to go and respond to the Ebola crisis. And they say, okay, what do they want us to do? And then I say, well, they want us to run an Ebola treatment unit. And the whole place goes quiet. And then I said, but it's okay because no one will go, right? I said, I agreed to it, and we will set one up, but no one will go. And, and uh, everyone in the room was like, yeah, no one will go. It was, everyone was, this was, the whole world was in fear of Ebola. So I thought, we're going to set up this place, and then no one human being will go there. And the head of HR, a person by the name of Colleen, said, I don't know, you know, I don't know. She said, why don't you just let me advertise? So we said, okay. So she put an ad in the, on our website. And, and I said, make sure they know what they're getting into. So it, the ad was needed doctors and nurses to run an Ebola treatment unit in the heart of the Ebola crisis in Liberia. Mm -hmm. Website crashed. Website crashed. 450 people applied like this, bang, from wow. all over the world. So many doctors and nurses applied that our website went down. And I will say this, I will put the photo up of this. We sent that team, we set up the Ebola treatment unit. The first day we had the first team that was trained to go into the Ebola treatment unit. There's like five of them and they're standing there. Okay, scariest country on earth, Liberia. Scariest epidemic on earth, Ebola. Scariest room on earth, the room, second scariest room on earth, the room before that door into the Ebola treatment unit, scariest room on earth. Here they are, five of them, wearing all the stuff that you see in the newspaper. You know, those face masks, scariest costumes in the world. And we took a photo of these five before they went in. And one of them does a bunny ears behind another one. <laughs> <laughs> this is, uh, humans are amazing, right? Someone's cracking a joke yeah. before going into that place. Yeah? yeah, I don't think I could do that, but humans are amazing. So the one moment where I thought humans wouldn't come up, step up, they totally did. Crashed the web, crashed the internet. Oh, our internet, at least. It's amazing. When you look at communication, and certainly the media, they love to scaremonger. They love to scaremonger at the moment. It's all about the cost of living. It's about there's nowhere to rent. If you put aside the Prince Harry and, and, and King Charles conversation, underneath that is a story every day about China. Now, China is you know, going to take over the world. We need to be scared of China. We in the West need to worry about the North Koreans. In, in reality, is this, is this something we need to worry about? I mean, you're over there. You're, as you said, you've been in the White House. You've advised them on, on certain things. Is this a, a concern for us? You know, here's my observation after um, 
you know, I, I didn't make, used to make a joke, right, is that you know when somebody has lost their mind and they think they're a statesman is when they talk about China, right? China's like one point something billion. It's a global superpower. It's And the moment somebody that's like me starts talking about China, I think this person's getting way uh, ahead of their skis. Mm. Yep. So I, I come at this as a person who's lived in China. I come at this as a, a organization that works across the Pacific. But I also come at this as a person now who after all of his years, like many people, has been just told that everything just is about to go to rack and ruin and it just doesn't. Yep. And we love to catastrophize. The problem with that is that often we're... Do you know we make these lists. People make these lists every year. The five big things to watch out for in the next year. Yeah. There's one thing that's always true about those lists. I've been tracking those lists all the time because that's my kind of job. Like I, I, I used to look at those to work out what's the five big things that are going to happen. What I noticed after a few years was there's one thing that is always true and consistent. The big thing that happens is never, ever on the list. Yep. <laughs> Did we predict the Arab uprising, the Arab Spring? No. No, it was not mentioned on any of those lists. Was the global uh, financial meltdown in 2008, 2009 on those lists? It was not on those lists. Did anyone see Donald Trump coming? No. Did anybody see the rise of white nationalism in the US and globally happening? No. Did anybody predict? Now, you can say somebody always says things. It's like, you know, there's a quote that says that e economists predicted eight of the last two economic recessions. Mm. Yep. So there's always somebody out on the interweb somewhere <laughs> going, the world's ending because of X, right? So I'm not talking about those guys. Yep. I'm just saying no one predicted the biggest things that have happened to us in the last 10 years. Nobody predicted them and they weren't in the mainstream thought. We did not. Who got the pandemic? Yeah, nobody. I mean, they've been saying for years there's going to be one. Yeah, so, so eventually they're going to be right. So, yeah? so eventually you're going to be right. But but no one got this one. And then what, and this is including me, the day before the invasion of Ukraine. Now, of course, the, the US was starting to say, no, this is going to happen. But did any of us predict or see Europe back into a conflict? No. Part of what makes our life so uncertain is the big things that we are told constantly are the things that are hanging over our head like swords end up not being the things. So I'm not saying that there aren't big things that happen and there aren't things that royal societies and royal countries. I'm just saying almost none of us see those things coming. You know, that author called them black swan kind of events. But we love to, there's something about human beings something in the way that we think about risk and fear is that we're constantly sending out like a submarine. We're pinging out, trying to find something that's going to hurt and harm us. And so we live in this environment where we're living in constant fear. And, I, and, I, and, and mostly what I've learned about my life is this. Everything I've really feared hasn't happened. And the things that did happen to me, all my worrying made no difference in the end. Yep. And I think the world is in a, in a, in a very similar way like that. And so when I look at something like China and after living in China, almost everybody's waiting for lunch or the weekend. You know, people are just trying to get through. They're just trying to help their kids have a better life. Are there massive demographic shifts occurring inside of China? Yes, there was this huge movement to the factories. Now there's factory and there's a movement back. There are demographic shifts that are happening because there haven't had enough children. All these things are true and these things are happening. But China's also barely holding all this together. Yeah. We try to create boogeymen or what, we try to create these things. 
you know, we said for years that Russia had this second most powerful army, that their tank forces were unstoppable, and and it just turns out it's just not true. Does that mean that Russia didn't invade Ukraine? Yes, they did. Are they creating untold suffering? Yes, they are. But is the whole narrative and the story that we were telling about them, did that end up being true? No, it didn't. But the one thing that we didn't think they would do, invade a country, did that end up being true? Yep, so... What am I offering in the face of all of these things? Yep. It is to say, it comes down to, for me, my three questions, which is how the world shows up to you in a very real way and how the world shows up to societies. This is in a very real way. It comes down to how we answer three questions. Do we think there's enough in the world? Do we think that people are basically good? Mm-hmm. And thirdly, is there anything we can do about any of this stuff? And I think the story that we're telling, and it's not a grand conspiracy, it just seems to be the way it's playing out, is that the, the people are saying, no, the world is, is not abundant, that there is not enough, that we're going to have to fight for every square metre of turf and earth that we have and we have to fear some China or some other entity to come and take it from us. And that secondly, when we think are people good, I don't think we meet one. I think all of us in theory say, oh, no, I think people are good. But then deep down... We really ask ourselves this question, do we really just believe in one another? Yeah, and do we really just, do we? And then thirdly, I think it all comes together in this question, there is no wicked person that's gonna end life for us. There is no good person that's gonna come and save us. In the end, it's gonna come down to all of us doing something together to bring about some kind of change. You said, I wanna go back to something you said a second ago, which was you were in the White House. What's that experience like? Yeah. So what I would say is the White House is actually a mixture of things. When people think about the White House, they often think of West Wing, yeah, right, which is the president's office and the president's area. I have not been in the West Wing. Next to it is what's called the East Wing. That makes yeah? sense. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> which, is, which is where the apparatus of the executive government actually sits. The vice president sits in there. Um, it's where the apparatus of the executive lives. So all the people that do the work of the president all live in the East Wing Mm -hmm. and then there's a large sort of compound around that that has various gatherings and meeting rooms and different things. So I've been in the East and so that's where you go in if you want to talk to people about policy and how policy is enacted and when they want to do consultations. If you're not consulting with the president, you go to the East Wing. Yep. And so that's where I've been. And what's it like to be in there? Everybody you meet... And I've been there under the, I was there under the Obama administration Mm -hmm. and I was there under the Trump administration. In both cases, the individuals I met were were similar in in their brilliance, in their competence, in their talent, in their earnestness and in their good intention. Everybody I met in there was just honestly just trying to make things better for America and at some degree better for the rest of the world, but certainly for America. Um, but, and they were trying to do that in a way that didn't hurt the rest of the world, at least. But you do also realize when you're in there that you just... I had a similar experience when I was in that refugee camp in the northern part of Afghanistan after 9-11, right? So I'm, I'm in this area called Kunduz where Chris Walker span, the American Taliban, had been captured only a few weeks earlier. Mm-hmm. It's on CNN. The whole world is covering it. And you're standing there and you're with another few people and you're about to go into a refugee camp and you think, here's the whole world's talking about Afghanistan. 
It's the, it's the, it's the thing. And yet here is me and my four buddies, right? It, you suddenly <laughs> think, you think there'd be more, right? <laughs> you do really when you're there, you go, is there somebody smarter <laughs> than me? Than me, <laughs> right? Is there somebody? Surely this is not up to surely us. Surely it's not up to us. Yeah. Yeah, and even when you're in that White House, you the groups that you're meeting with are much smaller than you think. Yep, it's not like there's 200 people work. It's much smaller gatherings. It's and so these are amazing people. Well, they're public servants, right? Yeah, they're, they're giving their service. They're the same kinds of people that work in yeah, local yeah. government, and they're exactly the same types. Yeah. And uh, earnest, well-intentioned, very smart, but there's much less of them, and they're, they're, it seems overwhelming to them, and they're just trying to get through it. And so, again, I, I would give the feeling that the temptation I think all of us have is to believe that somewhere, somewhere else, somebody is solving a thing. But in the end, it may be you that's meant to do that. Yeah? And you look at yourself in the mirror and you go, surely it can't be me. <laughs> right? Surely it can't. The only thing I have going for me now is that I've met enough people to go, oh, okay, no, it's probably me. Yeah. Now, I'm not the best or the greatest, but then again, Everybody's just pretty much like me. Yeah. If not me, then who? Then who will do it? Yeah. yeah. And I do give, this is a tension that you'll hear in the way I talk. I've made the point that I'm never the first person, that I'm, I'm not even a bronze medal winner, that everywhere you go, there's always someone there trying to do good. And that is all very true. And there is this sort of avalanche of people trying to do good. But there is a real tension here because you also find yourself responding and doing things and you just think, surely there's more, surely smart... Surely it can't be me. And in the end, it's not, it's you. Have you, you would have met people that have just come from, have just made a decision to do something, mm -hmm. who have walked out of their life in another country and turned up somewhere to go, what can I do? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I actually asked that. I was that guy once. That, that, <laughs> in that Gujarat earthquake I mentioned, you fly into this place. This massive earthquakes hit this part. It's in the northwestern uh, part of India, a place called Gujarat, a state called uh, Gujarat. 340,000 buildings uh, destroyed, entire villages for, for miles and miles and miles, nothing, nothing but destruction. And we're trying to work out what to do. And we heard that the head of the Indian government response was, you know, managing this. So we drive up. There's a whole set of tents all there. This is where it's being managed out of. Mm. And you walk in and you go, where's so-and-so, right, the guy that's running the show? They go, oh, he's over there. He's wearing this vest. He'll stand out. He's like hair on fire. Yep. So I walk <laughs> up to him. He's there and he's like hair on fire. <laughs> And I said, okay, we've turned up, we're a team, we're here to respond. What should we do? He turns around, looks at me and says, man, look around you. Just do something. And then he moves <laughs> back to his thing. <laughs> so uh, I can't even remember the question. <laughs> it's a good story nonetheless. Uh, the question was you must have met people yeah. who have just stopped what they were doing, stepped out of their lives and gone, right, I'm going to do my bit. Yeah, so that's my answer. If someone was to say, what should I do? I go, man, look around you. Woman, look around you. Just do something. But what, but, but, so, okay, so I want to I go and help, right? I jump on a plane tomorrow. I fly to Istanbul. I go to the part of Turkey affected by the earthquake or I fly to Kiev or I, I fly into to Poland and I train to Kiev. What do I do? Do I walk up to someone and go, how can I help? Yeah, so that's like um, – There'll be people listening to this getting the heebie-jeebies as they hear that, thinking there'll be an avalanche of volunteers going over. But 
it's okay to have more people trying to help than not, right? It's this is a, a workable problem. But but the way you described it, that that happens less than you think. Most people are sitting at home, and they think I want to do something. I'm watching something on the news. What is it that I can do? And it is a very rare person that just gets on an airplane and just shows up. Now that doesn't mean they don't. Have, I've I've met people like that that just show up. You're one of them. I was one of them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That can work out okay. <laughs> But in that instance in the earthquake, I was with an organization, I brought resources and I brought expertise to that setting. We knew exactly what we do. What mm -hmm. we, we have like a menu option of things we can do in response to an earthquake. We have expertise. Yeah. I would say most people though aren't doing that. Most people are, are being confronted by this in their everyday life and they want to know a way. And I would say it, the moment you, this may sound glib, but the moment you decide that you want to do that, something will show up for you. I know it with certainty. It's the parking spot theory. The parking if you, spot theory. Well, the new car theory. It's the new car theory. So yeah. you want to buy a new oh, yeah, car. Yeah. I want to buy a new Mazda 3. I want to buy an electric blue one. Yeah. All of a sudden you see 100 electric blue Mazda 3s on the road. That's what happens. If the moment you decide, I'm going to start doing good in my life, I want to start making a difference, you'll find ways to do it. It's, it will just come to you like that. You'll start seeing those cars everywhere you go. All I would say is don't sit there and say when they're coming, when you're seeing them in your environment – don't think that probably somebody else is doing something about this because it's, there's a strong chance that they're not. So if those moments are suddenly revealing themselves to you, just go and do something. Has there been a time, apart from the first time, when you went to the travel agent that you spoke about in yeah. the first episode and said, I want to go yeah. fly me to the poorest places in the world, yeah. where you've sat down and you've heard about something or you've seen something on television and go, I need to be there yeah. and literally got up and gone and left? Yeah, most things. <laughs> Most yeah. things. So people don't come to you and say, can you come and help first? You 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 choose yeah. to act first? Yeah, yeah. And when you get to these places, do you allow yourself to feel in that situation? Yeah. Or do you just uh, – you've seen so, so many things that are just beyond thinking about. Yeah. Do you have to shut down the emotion or do you allow yourself a moment that's to stop and, no, and get upset? No, that's the opposite of what you must do. So, again, when you work in these kinds of things, people tell you this very early in your career. They will, they will say, you must be objective and professional. And I know there's a whole school of thought about this, that you, in the, in the face of these kinds of uh, levels of suffering where there's a multiplicity of problems, uh, where that you can see the real uh, – and when you have multiple appeals for help, all this sort of very oh, you know, overwhelming mm -hmm. thing like this – People will tell you, you must be objective, you must be professional, you shut yourself down, you just use your competence, you just use your expertise, you triage the situation, you just bang, 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 bang. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's the way you do this. I'm not going to give you a well-thought-out view on this because I don't know how to explain it. I think you do the exact opposite of it. Yeah. You must be in it and present in it but without um, – you can't feel guilty or you can't feel like I can't – I'm failing in it, yeah? Yeah. So instead what you say is I'm here and, and then you say, well, well, what are you talking about? So one of the things that I do in all these environments is that I try to behave in a loving way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what that means is that if I'm sitting – if I'm meeting with refugees, say that a group of refugees have walked a long way – and you meet them, the way to be objective would be to say, okay, registration team, meet them. 
get their IDs down. This group, you group, form up in a line here. Men, women, line up here. Children, you go here, we, like this. Uh, instead, what I would say is go and greet them. Yep, because they've just walked all this way. If you can, if they're carrying their children, offer to take the child from them for a little bit. They're probably exhausted, mm. yep. Uh, find a mat or a place for them to sit down. Give them some shade and then when they sit down, let them sit down. Then try to organise it. Of course you do all the things that you're professional and competent in doing. But then when you talk to them, what you don't do is what I don't do and, and I used to get into a little bit of trouble for this is I don't cry. Right? If you sit with a refugee and they tell you that on the walk they've had to let two of their children die, the temptation is to think the way to be present in that emotion, one way is to be just whatever. Mm. But the other way is to sit there and go, oh, my God, right, how horrible. They absolutely do not want you to do either of those two things. What they want you to do is just ask them how they're doing, how their other kids are doing. And then I ask them, what's their kids' names? And then I say, tell me about where you came from. Did you have a farm? Did you have some goats? Like what got – I try to talk about normal life. Mm. I try to show an interest in them, I try to be a human being and know their names. So it's somewhere in the middle. I don't. Well, I guess they don't want you to pity them. No, and they know. They don't want you crying. They're like, I thought you were going to tell me something positive. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> like I've got two weeks to find you. Like you've got it together, right? Like yeah. you're not losing it because I'm losing it. Yep. So you're like, no, no, we're good. We got it. We got you. Yep. But I also like you because you're a human being and I'm a human being and I think you're amazing that you've walked two weeks and carried your children the whole way. That's like amazing. Yeah, no, they want you to be confident, they want you to know what you're doing and they want you to smile. All that stuff matters. And you can also touch them on the shoulder and tell them to be okay. Yeah, those things matter. And to do that in a real way, you have to love them and be with them. So you can't shut your emotions down in the face of that. My view, the people that shut those emotions down, they end up becoming just total jerks. They burn out and they leave. If you get to know people and you know their names and you know them, you stay for much longer. Hmm. Yeah, I could be doing this for 30 years and I and I'll go and do this tomorrow and that's the way I'll do it. But early on I got told that if you go that way, people will think you're unprofessional and that your career will be hampered. Yeah, but no one will take you seriously. But it's kind of okay. So many amazing stories and thank you for sharing that experience. If you would like to ask Daniel a question and I'm hoping you do. You can contact him through the website, danielwordsworth.com. Always hit him up on the socials. Do you know you're on the socials? You're on the socials. I'm on the socials. You're big on the socials. Okay, cool. Yeah, you've got followers. I don't think I'm big yet. People yeah. will DM you. Don't worry, slide into your DMs, as they say. And follow us along on uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any of the podcast platforms that allow you to do that so you don't miss any of the episodes of Finding Good. We'll talk to you next time.